If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 23 and 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that called you who will also do it. I've been talking about things in which the word unique is in the title the last couple of weeks about sovereignty and themes that go along with that, God's power and might and knowledge and so forth. And I want to talk today about God's unique agenda at the end because this is what he said he will do and that will be done. This is going to happen with somebody at the coming of Jesus. Now, let me go back to chapter 4 and come back up to this. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there was some concern about what happens to the dead. Do the dead, when they die, do they just die and exist no more and go back to the grave and that's all there is? They're gone forever, as people seem to think. We hear this at funerals a lot. I think I use this at the ones that I've done. In verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. That is, when he comes back, he will bring these with him. Are you with me? Somebody is going to come back with Jesus when he comes back. So he's assuring them, and he goes on to say, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede or prevent them which are asleep, those that have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's a lot of theology here I'm not going into, but the Lord is going to come back for his people. And these people are going to be with him for a space of time. We don't know where or what, but I suspect it'll be a time in which he deals with us that are his and whatever he's going to do with us then. And then when he comes back to the earth, because he only came back in the air here, he said, we will meet him in the air. He doesn't return to this physical earth, but he returns in the air and we're caught up to meet him. Those that have died in Christ, those who are alive when he comes and they will be with him. Now, wherever he is and whatever happens in, he'll be with him. Then Paul also describes that there will be a day of the Lord, a time in which God begins to judge the earth and all the sinful things that have been on this earth, the nations and people. It's not a particular day, but it's a time. It has several aspects to it. And he talks about that beginning in chapter 5 and verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord is not what he talked about at the end of chapter 4. He's explaining this to them. The day of the Lord is this day in which the Lord takes vengeance. It's the day of wrath on this earth. You don't want to be here. Now, a lot of people say we're all going to be here, but I tell you, we really don't want to be here. I would rather like to think that we can escape that which is to come, as Jesus said. Pray that you may be worthy to escape all these things that are coming on the earth. Well, you should pray that you will be. Four in verse three, and you're living at a time when this is going to happen because peace is the one word that everybody in the nations of this world are talking about and profess that they want because of the constant turmoil of war and killing and upheavals and uprisings and death and squalor and poverty and droughts. People say we need relief and we need peace. And he said, when they begin to say unto you peace and safety, he says, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. They, not meaning you, but they who are still here. They shall not escape. 
But he says, you know, you shouldn't be in darkness about this. We have told you about all of this before. Verse 9, God has not appointed us to wrath, but God has appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we will live together with him. So you have this as your hope. Every man that has this hope in him, John wrote, will purify himself. Jesus Christ is coming back for his people. You want to make sure you're his people, not looking like one or having the semblance of his people or around his people, because he said amongst his people there are wheat and tares. There are good fish and there are bad fish. They're all mingled together, and they will be together at the end. There will be a separation takes place. That's another work that God will do. But then he says, concerning your life and these last days and the time that is come, he said, verse 16, rejoice. In the meantime, while you're still here, rejoice. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast the things that are good. Abstain from all the appearance of evil. Then he gives us our text. And the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly. Now, God is going to do a unique work. This is his agenda. This is what he has assigned himself to do on our behalf. And two specific things are mentioned here that he has to do. And if he doesn't do it, it cannot be done. Because what God says he will do, nobody else, no other system of man can do it. Man can have a religious system and have it function in such a way that he is pleased with it and people are praised in it, but it does not mean because it's religious that God is doing it. But what God is doing is unique. And again, it is unique because man cannot do it. He can't get close to it. Only God can do it. And the two things he says in our text that he will do is he will sanctify us and he will preserve us blameless. I have to admit in my life to what I understand about these two words and the meaning of them, that is a really a tall order. I mean, it really, really is. We're familiar with the words like sanctified, sanctification. We hear that a lot. We may not know a whole lot about the specifics of it, but it has to do with something about religious people and living right. And that's about as far as most people's thinking will go with that or preserve blameless, some we think, we usually think like along the lines of, well, it's, uh, it's one of those things that's over my head and I, you know, blameless, I, I don't know how all it's gonna work out. I'm just glad I'm going to church and I'm a Christian. But God put those things in there, not for us to avoid and to read around it and go somewhere else, but Ask yourself, what does that mean in light of what I profess to believe as a Christian? In my professed relationship with the Lord, what do I believe about that? Is this something that is happening in my life? He said it would. And especially in light of the last days when so much turmoil is coming, plus this spectacular incredibly wonderful moment when Jesus comes back in the air and his people are caught up there to meet him. Will I be caught up? Will I go because I go to church? Will I go because I asked the Lord to come into my heart? Just something I said, or was it that emotional moment at the crusade or the revival? I went forward or I'm reading my Bible every day. Or I'm teaching Sunday school class or going to church most of the time. Is this qualifying me? Am I good enough to go? Or do we just assume that somehow all of that will work out and it's no big deal, I'm going somewhere else? Well, maybe we need to go and look at some of these things that capture your attention and you're not too sure what to do with it. Let's look at it today because these two things, to sanctify and to preserve us, are extremely important. Now, they can only happen because God is able to make both of these things happen. 
God is able to preserve you and not just keep you from falling away, but to keep you in such a way that you become pure and clean in his sight so that he has no occasion or reason to judge you. He can do such a work of cleansing in you that when he gets done with you, not even he can find a fault with you. And you'll be ready. And I look around at us, especially at me, and I think, boy, this is going to be a real big job. But it really isn't because the power that God has to do the things that he does is so above our thinking that it is nothing for God. He simply decrees and declares things to happen, and they happen. Now, he can do that because he is sovereign. That means he's in control over all of his creation. He has power, all power, and all might. He is omnipotent, omnipotent, and he can do as he pleases, when he pleases, as often as he pleases. And he is like the potter and the clay. The clay, which is people, the clay cannot say to the potter, why are you doing this? Because it's just subject to the potter. He can make out of the clay whatever he wants, can't he? He can make a beautiful vase or he can make a spittoon. They still have those. He can do with it whatever he pleases. He's under no law with the clay to make everything the same. He doesn't have to and he does not because he is God. Now, if he's not sovereign, he's not God. If he doesn't possess all power and all knowledge, then he really is not the God of the Bible. And you hear people say today, I've heard religious people say, theologically inclined people say, well, I wouldn't say that God always knows what a man is going to do. Then he's not all-knowing. If he doesn't know that, what else does he not know? I'm counting on him that he knows everything because he said he did. Now, if he doesn't, then maybe I'm going to come up short myself. My faith and my hope rest in the sovereignty of God, in his all-power, all-encompassing rule and authority on this earth. There's evil out there. There is something awful and wicked in this earth, the prince of the power of the air and so forth. I have got to know I'm depending on someone to save me who's bigger than that, greater than that, and is in control of all of that. And he is because he is sovereign. He is God. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, God asked the question. He said that nothing is too hard for me. Nothing. And he goes on further in Jeremiah 32, verse 27. He said, is anything too hard for God? Is there anything that he can't do? You stop and think, is there any problem in your life he can't solve? Is there anything that's too difficult for God? Is there a member of your family who is just too far gone, they can't be saved, that he can't save. Not at all. God has the ability to exercise his divine power over anything, any situation, to do whatever he has to. He can make the earth open up and swallow bad people. He can. He can make fireballs fall from heaven to destroy the enemies of Israel when they were fighting. He can choose sides. He can. He can choose sides. Why can't he? He's God. Is he not free to do with his creation whatever he wants to? Remember we said this concerning the created order. He said the earth, Psalm 24:1. the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that are therein. That's you. You're the Lord's. In Revelation chapter 4, it says, and for thy pleasure we are created. Why are we on this earth? God put us here for his reasons. Whatever pleases him. So my faith this morning rests in that. I don't know why others that I grew up with in my family were not called out of the same darkness I was in. I don't know why their hearts were not stirred and brought to this attention that how sinful you are and God have mercy. I don't know why they didn't have that experience. I look back at the church I came out of and I grew up in and all the wonderful things that happened there, and I noticed a lot of people just quit and drifted away. I don't know why I have stayed put, except God, who started a good work in me, is still in the process of completing it. And that, as he said, there are those he has graven on the palms of his hands, and he cannot forget you. 
And he has called some people his sheep. And he said, they hear my voice, and no man shall ever pluck these out of my hands. I don't know who these particular people are because we can all act like we are. But I know that his people will live this way to the very end. They will endure to the end. So you can have the appearance of righteousness. You can have the appearance of evil. But the true work of God as a sovereign God who chooses as he pleases, as it has pleased him, has done a work and is doing a work in us in which he will keep us. Now, if he doesn't do that, I promise you, this world will capture me and it will defeat me. But God has control over all things, even the devil. For example, one of the most common verses that you quote that we hear of in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now listen to this. He said this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He's in control even of your dark days. Did you know that? He's in control of the amount of pressure the devil can bring against you because the devil can't just do whatever he wants to because God is in control. The earth is the Lord's. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, God shall preserve me blameless unto his coming. God can do that. Now, we can't take this for granted. I cannot assume that because I've made it this far, I'm okay. Because the Bible says we must endure to the end. We must live like our name is in the book of life. I haven't seen the book. I can't just assume my name is there. I must believe it's there. And I must believe it there in such a way that I live like it's there. That's why we do make differences and changes in our life, because we believe that God holds us to live this kind of a life. And while we're doing our best to live it this way, it is God who finally will enable us to make it, because without him, we can't. I'm doing all I know to do. I teach, I listen, I learn, I try to make application and realize that God holds me to all of this. And from my side, I do all I know I'm supposed to do. And behind the scenes, in my weakness, in my failings, it is God who holds me up and enables me to make it through. Even when the devil comes around, he says, now, you can only go so far with him. Because God has a work he's going to finish in me, and when he's through with it, I'm going to go into his eternal habitations. Now, I believe this. I believe this. The just shall live by faith. We've got to believe this is true. We've got to walk as though it's true. You've got to live as though you're convinced that it's true. I can't say, well, on June 30th, 1968 at Charlestown, Indiana, I went forward and therefore I'm, you know, I'm done. I made it. Hallelujah. No, sir, because as I read this book, it tells me there's a life to live. Even in this chapter, rejoice, approve all things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is what I have to do. I can't do it without his help. I'm unable to continue this kind of life he wants me to live. I can't live this life. I'll fall away because things would frighten me. Things would defeat me. I would be captured by something, overwhelmed by something, some kind of a greed or lust or something, and then he'd have to judge me because of sin. So I realized this morning, standing here talking to you, that while we are fussed at about living a narrow life, it was God's idea that we live it. It is God's way for us to live. And as we begin to struggle and realize that I don't know if I can do this, then when you come to the end of this, you know that he's got to finish it. This is where we started this whole unique series in 1 Peter 5. After you have suffered a while, he will do this and this and this. He'd do four things. He's going to finish the work that he has started inside of us. But he is in control. Remember the 91st Psalm, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. Don't you think the fowler, the bird catcher, the devil, don't you think he wants to capture all of you? Mm -hmm. Then why you, through all these years, have you been delivered from being caught? It's God. 
Look at the people who haven't been spared. They've walked away. They have a casual interest in God now. They can miss church for weeks at a time. And it, no big deal. It's not important anymore because something has happened. You see, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment. God knows how to do all of that. So I'm in good hands, not with all state, but with God. I'm in good hands as long as I keep myself there because I do have a will. I do live by choices. God has ordained it to be that way. And so the choices that I am making, I'm also aware that he is inside encouraging me to make those decisions. Just like a lost man or a lost woman. For by grace, through faith, are you saved. And that, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When I was lost in my sins, I was aware that I was a sinner, bothered by it to some degree, but unwilling to do anything about it. But there came a day in which God, to use a colloquial, wrestled me to the ground and made me look and see myself as he saw me. And when I saw what he saw, I was really bothered by it. I'd never been bothered before, but there was a day I was because God is able to make situations like that happen in your life. Remember, it is godly sorrow, sorrow that God brings and puts in a person's life that causes us to repent. And if you've never repented, you've probably never had this experience. But the Almighty God, when he invades, if I can say it, when he invades a life that he's going to save, he does something inside a person's heart that makes them sorry for their sins. His buddy thinks, what's wrong with you? He says, man, I, I've got to get right with God. Oh, you're all right, man. You go to church. No. One man is a blank, and the other man is tore up because this is the work of God. As he pleases, as he chooses, and it always works because when he begins, he stays with it until it's finished. You notice in verse 24, your Bible says, faithful is he that called you who what? Does your Bible say that? Now, you have this this morning before we leave this place. You have this to be thankful. God, who has started to work in me, will not give up because he is faithful. I am not bad enough for him to give up. I have not gone so far away that he cannot save me. Remember Isaiah 59.1? The Lord's hand is not so short he can't reach you. His ear is not so dull that he cannot hear you. I mean, he's God. But you make sure, like Peter said, you make your calling and election sure. Live by faith. Trust in God. You haven't seen the end. You're only living in the present. You only know what you've heard. You've got to act like it's true. I believe it's true. I haven't seen him. I haven't seen the book. I haven't seen the, the tomb that he came out of. I have seen the cross he died on. I've never even seen the hill where the cross was but I believe it. I choose to believe it. And I want to live like it has a great impact in my life. This is the work of God. Remember John 6, 29? This is the work of God that you might believe. It's what God does to bring us to himself. Without living like this, remember what Hebrews 11 says, without faith, you can't please him. If you just assume you're all right and then live your life without really any urgency of living this way, then chances are you've never been born again. Because if you've been born again, there's something in you that cries out, Abba, that draws you to him. You're yoked with Christ and learn of him. And, and the more you learn, the more your convictions come into play. And oh, God, this is because God is sovereign. And he can do with us those kind of things to make us the way he wants us to be so he does not, at the end, have to judge us. Now, we should be grateful for that and know that our faith is anchored in hope that God, who started this work, is going to finish it. Now, back to our text, verse 23 and 24. What does it mean to sanctify? Because the two words we talked about is sanctify and preserve blameless. Now, what does it mean to sanctify? 
There are churches whose major doctrinal emphasis in their church is sanctification. Now, I've been around through the years and travels and study and so forth. I've been around some whose one of the major tenets of their faith is sanctification. And it seems, I read it like this, that once you come to the Lord and you have been born again, when God has accepted you, then when he has accepted you, there's something more that has to happen. They call it a second work of grace, that God continues what he started to do a second deeper work in you, the kind of work that when it happens, you become pious and devoted. You're very consecrated and committed to God, and you just live like you're supposed to live because you've been sanctified. And some of the old timers, some of the books that I have read about great preachers in the past, they used to tell the people who came forward to stay at the altar until you get sanctified. And that is stay there until this deeper work of grace happens because when you get up from that, you'll never go back. In fact, one of the great revivals in America, the great enlightenment, people were told to stay at the altar until something similar to this happened. And it was said that most of the converts stayed converted. Now, I'm not going to mess with anybody's experience and tell you that you're out of line or any of that. All I'm going to say is that from the biblical standpoint, salvation has three particular phases to it in the Scripture. The first part has to do with your positional sanctification. When God called you out of darkness unto him to be his child, you were sanctified. In fact, you'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, Hebrews 10, 10, that by virtue of being a Christian, we are sanctified. Because the word sanctified essentially means separation. And is it not true in the mass of humanity in the world that when God reached down and selected you to be his child and brought you out of the miry clay and so forth, brought you into himself, did not his selection, his choosing you, make you holy? Now, you're not perfect. We know that. And you're still apt to mess up and break a lot of rules. But we're not talking about living as though you are above sin. We're talking about just the fact that he chose you. His choice of you, his identification with you, his spirit in you makes you holy because you're his. You know, even the animals that were brought to God on the day of sacrifice were called holy. They were holy because they were his. They belonged to God. Whatever belongs to God is holy. It is set apart. It is sanctified. The word sanctify also has to do with being holy. It comes from the same root word for holy. In fact, the word sanctification, sanct, S-A-N-C-T, is a word for saint or holy ones. Fication, sanctification is the process of making or the way of producing, the way you make saints. That's what sanctification means. Well, that would make it, secondly, experimental or a process. We are being sanctified. When the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, or as Peter said, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It means from the time that God brought you to himself until the time of the end of your life, the process of God in changing you is called sanctification. We often refer to this in Romans 12. You know, you are to present your body as a living sacrifice. In Romans 12, Paul said, present your bodies. This is something you do. God doesn't make you do this. You do this in response to God. Present your bodies daily as a living sacrifice. I lay my life before you this morning, today, as your child, that you would do with me whatever you want. That you would make me to know your wishes and your will. He goes on to say, be not conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed. Now, the transform means to change, the metamorphosis, to change from something to something else. This is the process of sanctification. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because while God brought you out of the miry clay, your mind is still the stumbling block in your life because all the things you learned and all the 
ideas and philosophies you had, you brought out of the world, when you come to God, they are still a stumbling block between you and God. That's why we say, well, I don't know about that. Well, why would I have to do it? Well, that doesn't make sense because you don't have a spiritual mind. But because you're his, God, who alone can do it, begins the process of changing your thinking. Teach me thy, O Lord, that I may rank number one in thy class. No, that I simply may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because if you don't, I'm going to stay as I always was. The same mouthy way I grew up in, I'm going to stay that way. I'm, same vulgar words I used, the same nasty stuff in my life before. It's going to stay there unless you do something. And it will. So he begins to renew your mind. Hopefully you sit somewhere or you go somewhere or you listen to something that challenges your convictions. That you hear a word that comes from God. Not just read, but explained. That's why people don't like this. I find that religious people in opposition to things that I believed, they don't mind you reading the Bible or quoting the Bible. They just don't want you to explain what it means. Just don't tell me what that means. My daddy was a Catholic. Lead me to my Catholicism. Don't tell me what the truth is because I like what I got. I don't want to change. But that's no different from Methodists, Baptists, or Pentecostals. The thing that gets people in trouble, preachers, is that you're not content just to say what the Bible says, but you want to explain it to people so they know what it says. And the more you begin to explain what Scripture says, the more people are stirred and bothered by that. And we're living in an hour of comfort and happiness. People want to be happy and comfortable. They don't want to be stirred up and have to wrestle with God and wrestle with their life and make changes that will get them persecuted and, and changes that will make people be disgusted with them. They just want to fit in with society and in the world. And, but God says, no, you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in doing that, I'm going to separate you from the world. You're going to be sanctified. You're going to come out from among them and be ye separate, and you're not going to touch the unclean thing, but you've been touching it your whole life. Why are now you going to quit touching it? Because God has opened my eyes to see how damaging it is, and my heart is really bothered by the fact that I used to do this, and I was so offensive to God, I don't want to do it anymore. And as you begin to make this change and this adjustment, you begin to come out from your old ways, and you quit fighting with God and debating with God about it ain't fair and it's not right and, and I can't do it and that's too hard and that's too narrow, you just begin to say, yes, Lord. doesn't mean you understand everything yet. You just give up all controversy with the Lord and say, you're entirely right and I'm entirely wrong. I want to learn your ways. And this is how you learn his will. This is when the peace and quiet begins to creep into your life because he's a God of peace who can do this. And this process of changing you from the way you were, this busy, opinionated life into a life of peace and quiet with the Lord. You begin to take his yoke upon you. You begin to experience the effect of thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. I have assigned myself a place under. I just want to be a part of what you're doing. Just open my ears to hear open my eyes to see, open my heart that this word may find a lodging place so that at the end you can say to me when my head is bowed, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But I didn't. God was the one who did all of this. My privilege was in cooperation with him and using my will to agree with him because ultimate sanctification finally at the end is this. Remember these words in Romans 8, for whom he did foreknow them, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Is this what God decreed from the foundation of the world? Oh, man, we're over our heads. We really are. I want to seize this moment just right now. God said, whom he did foreknow. Did he foreknow? I think Ephesians 1, 4 says, from the foundation of the world, you were chosen to salvation. Somebody was. 
pray that you were. Whom he did foreknow, them he did, Romans 8, them he did also predestinate to be conformed, made like his son Jesus. Is that a work? If you were conformed to the image of Jesus, would you be sanctified? <laughs> you would be. Well, as he is, so are we in this world, the Bible says. Same spirit that was in Christ is in you. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of your life. What God granted to him, he granted to you. He learned obedience to the things he suffered just like you. I mean, we're walking in the same world that he walked in, facing the same devil he faced. And he cried out to God and was heard because he was pious. Well, the same thing can be true with you. And being therefore perfected, you can therefore be perfected also. This is what God is doing with his people, among other things. It's this process of changing us and tempering us and rooting out all the junk that he has to judge. All these attitudes and ideas and temperaments and moodiness and all this trash that we keep in our life, he has to judge it. But God has assigned himself. As I said, his agenda, he's going to come into your life and deal with you about getting this stuff out of your life. And if he has to put you flat on your back or on your face, he'll do it. For whom he loves, he chastens, he instructs, he teaches, he disciplines. And if you're without that, are you here? Hebrews 12. If you're without this, then you are illegitimate. You're not really his children. Because his children are continually undergoing his constant commentary. He's always talking to us. He never leaves us alone. I mean, he brings you in from yesterday's glory and makes you ashamed of some things you did. Because he's God. You can't be like the world. You can't have that in your life. It's got to be different. And so a loving God chooses to bring you into places. I hope he's doing it and setting you down and putting your face before that book. And he said, now this is the way you've got to walk. If you don't walk this way, I don't know you. You mean preachers can? Yeah, he said, there's a lot of them. He said, I did this, Lord. I preached a lot of sermons. I did miracles. And he said, I never knew you. Whew. God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He does a lot of things that reaches the end that he has decreed it would come to. Sanctification, folks, is when God changes us to make us to be the kind of people that he wants. And the word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, sanctify you holy, it means entirely. Thayer's Dictionary says this, to complete to the end, to make absolutely perfect. Now, who else can make you perfect? Who else in this world? What study course can you take? What tape can you buy on a daily five minutes a day and become transformed tape? What church, what elaborate system of religious man anywhere in this world can deal with you about your hangups and your faults and your failings, about your tendency to gossip and whine and control, manipulate, be divisive, be hard-headed and hard to get along with. Moodiness, shame, disgust, unforgiveness. Who can change you? People take those kinds of courses, go to those kind of meetings, get in those prayer lines, and they stay like that. They never change. Where's the evidence of God in their life? Where is the evidence? How do we look at somebody and say, this man, this woman has been with God? Is it not by the fruit that tree bears? Did he not say you shall know them by their fruits? When God sanctifies you completely and entirely, the evidence appears to all. 
That's why you should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. That's part of your testimony. But if you yak and uglify yourself around others because you want to be cool, want to be accepted, then it's evidence that God does not control your life. Now, he could. If he's not, where is he? See, I said all of that so we would all get to think about where I stand in relation to what I believe. I say that Jesus is Lord of my life. Is he? Is it possible? What about verse 23 again about spirit, soul, and body? Sanctify you entirely. He mentions these three compartments. What does that mean? Is there such a thing as spirit, soul, and body? Well, if there isn't, I don't know what this means. But he said, sanctify you completely, or through and through, or all of you. I know what a body is. My body is the outer appearance of me. Would you agree? You don't have to. You know who I am by this thing. And it changes. Doesn't stay bareheaded, brown-headed, and young-looking. It gets saggy and old and, and all of that later on. It hadn't yet, but it wants to. <laughs> but anyway, my body is nothing more than a house. My body is not even capable of sinning. It just responds to instructions. Whatever controls you controls the way you live and act what you do. I see things with my body. My body is sensual. It feels things. My body lusts after things, whether it's food or drugs or sports or movies. There's things out here that my body just finds pleasure in. Now, some of these things are not right, and they'll damn you and they'll condemn you. Now, my body's just responding to its input. What's my soul? God breathed into Adam. Adam became a what? A living soul, a living person, a being, a personality. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam. And here was Adam. Now, he has a body, but his body's animated by what's inside of him. We usually think of the soul, we, meaning many, think of the soul as that part of the human psyche, or makeup, that comprises your mind, and your will, volition, and your emotions. But you are an emotional creature. If your emotions are not contained, you're a difficult person to be around. You're difficult to handle. You're not a very nice person, or you're an angry person, or you're a violent person, because so many people are ruled by how they feel, by their emotions. I mean, that's just the way they're governed. If this doesn't come under the lordship of Jesus, you can never serve the Lord. You may have nice moments and nice days, but if you're ruled by your feelings, your will becomes captive to that. And let me tell you something, folks. A lost man really does not possess a free will except in the extent of what kind of sin he wants to commit because he can only come to the Lord as God issues that call. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me but I chose you. Then how did I come to the Lord? Well, I decided when I got too old to slice mustard correctly, <laughs> cut the mustard, that one day when I got too old to have fun anymore, I'd just settle down and get religious and go to heaven. I realized I can't do that. Even my coming to the Lord is controlled by him. That's why some people in a great moment at a meeting when there's such conviction, some people really cry out for God. Somebody else is reading a comic book or telling a joke or writing a note or trying to text message somebody. Completely void. A real blank. But see, God could have done it to both of them, but he didn't. Because he's God, he can do whatever he wants to. So the soul, where the mind and the will is, it's where also the emotions are. If my emotions capture my will, I just respond, oh, I feel what you said. Well, I know what you meant. Oh, I can't stand him. Because that's the kind of person you really are. If God doesn't master that, 
You will remain that way, and at the end, he must judge you. Well, what's the spirit then? Well, Proverbs says the spirit of man is a candle of the Lord. That's the part on the inside of you that's dead. Remember the Bible said you were dead in trespasses and sins? Well, you were very much alive and emotional and sensual because the Bible describes all the sinfulness in your life like that. But you were dead. How were you dead? You were dead spiritually. There was nothing inside of you that could respond to God because if you're dead, you're dead. We talked about that last time. So how then does a dead man come to the Lord or a dead lady come to the Lord? How do dead people come to the Lord? You ever try to communicate? Well, don't do that. I would say, have you ever tried to talk to dead people? You might say, oh, my mom and I used to know. No, <laughs> that's alcohol. Don't do that. If I could say this and get by with it, have you ever tried to talk to somebody in a casket? I haven't. People talk to them like they can hear them, and they call them all these sweet names and everything, but they're dead. Only thing laying in a box, a casket, is a house, a physical body. Everything else is gone. It's gone into the hands of a righteous God. Whatever happens, it was fair. They died without being able to repent. A loving and a righteous God is their judge. Is that fair? The body is just in a casket, just in a box. We remember all the good times. We remember all the fun we had and the kindness of this man and, or whatever this person, woman, man, or woman did. But that's it. They're just a, a clay body. It's designed to go back to the dust of the earth. We put them in airtight vaults and airtight caskets and everything we do to preserve them. But they go back to the dust. I asked a man when my mom died, I said, does she have to be in a vault? He called the funeral home and he said, no. You can just put the casket in the ground. I said, do you want to do that? I said, yeah. You just want to dig the hole and put that casket just, why not? your call. Does the body go back to the dust of the earth? Is it supposed to? So what's the problem? They'll work their way through those hinges. They'll get in there. But the body was never meant to be worshipped and preserved. We're not Egyptians and making mummies out of our loved ones. They lived a life and they're dead. If they died in the Lord, they'll be back. What if they were burned or blown up? God knows where all the molecules are. He can speak a word. They all come back together. Whether judgment or resurrection. He's God. Preserved. Blameless unto his coming. Is that possible? I ask you this morning, is it possible for your husband, if you're married, is it possible for him to be blameless at the coming of the Lord? Now bow your head and just go, How about that mean woman you're married to? Is it possible for God to do that kind of work in her? Is it possible? Yeah, if we live maybe 8,000 more years as slow as it's going, maybe. No. Is it possible that you can be preserved, kept in a state of acceptance, blameless unto the coming of the Lord? Wow. Listen to these words. Remember this in Jude, the book of Jude, verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. To present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Turn to Jude. Let's seize this moment. It's what I prayed before I got out here. That we won't let this just go over our heads as another morning, but that these words like do will fall on good ground here and produce something, something good. That we won't escape the fact that when we stand before God at judgment, we heard it. We knew better. Or we heeded it and praise the Lord for it. Verse 24, Jude, right before the book of Revelation. Now unto him that is able, is he? Oh, praise God, he is, even with the worst one in here. That's me. The hardest project in this room is me. But God is able. God is able 
to keep me from falling. And what else? To present you faultless before the presence of his glory. Is it possible that God can do a work in his people so deep, so full, that when that person stands before God on the great day of judgment, a just and fair God looks at you and says, I find no occasion to judge you. You are as I want. Because he's going to judge billions of people. Why do some escape judgment? Because God did a deeper work in their life. God did. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22. Paul writes, to present you in a certain way, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you how? In the body of his flesh through death, to present you. That is, when he gets done with you, he will take you before the Lord as his work. Didn't he start a work in you? then he will say, Lord, here's another one that I've worked in and I have finished the work in this person. Here they are standing before you. What will they be like when he does that? Verse 22, he said, they shall be holy, unblameable, unreprovable. Paul, having this by revelation, of course, this is all inspired and written by God anyway, came to the conclusion, verse 28, that my call as a minister as a preacher, if you want to call it that. Whom we preach, verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also exhaust myself. I labor. It's that important. His ministry had to do with all about that. It was about you realizing what's required of you, teaching you what it is, and then warning you to do that. How popular is that? Not very, but it doesn't matter. What's he going to do with the church in Ephesians 5? Go back two books to the left. In Ephesians 5, verse 27, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. I know there are multitudes of people who think that when the Lord comes back for his church, it means that everybody who has professed Jesus as Lord will be in the church. Folks, that's not true. I'll tell you who's going up. It's going to be overcomers. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, Revelation 21. But the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, those who lie, steal, run around on their wives, live with other people, never make it. I don't care where you went to church. I don't care if you were a preacher or a great golf player. You'll never make it. Or a great coach. You'll never make it. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. A glorious church, he said in verse 27, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. In verse 4 of chapter 1, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that... We should be holy and without blame before him. Before him. Or as Paul wrote in the little book of Titus, he said, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. That's what we're supposed to be. That's why we turn the other cheek. That's why we go the extra mile. That's why we don't fuss and fight and fume and throw fits. You know, if I were a politician, I promise you, I would be very conservative. But I listened to a conservative man the other day, a talk show, one of the biggest in the country, maybe in the whole world. And I remember after about 30 seconds of that, it was just this scoffing and harsh judgments and just <laughs> and mocking and I thought you know I don't need this I don't need to fill my mind with this kind of stuff to make me think like him because whoever's teaching you that's the spirit you're going to carry with you I don't need that in closing turn to Isaiah chapter 66 please God is at work in us. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Isn't that true? Without me, you can't do anything. 
What kind of church is Jesus coming back for? Is he coming back for a lethargic, that means dull, not wanting to hear, kind of listless, indifferent church? Is he coming back after you? Will you be one of those caught up to meet him in the air? Will you be? Will he come back after people who are casually trying? Or will he come back after people who are really devoted, got their hands on the plow, really, really, no matter what the cost is, really wanting to live his way? Of course he is. That's who he's coming back for, not people that are dull of hearing. You see, what he's coming back for, the work he's doing in it is a picture of a man coming back, a bridegroom coming back for his wife, his bride. Now, the church is called the Bride of Christ, a multifaceted church with lots of members, a corporate body. And the work that he's doing in us is like the work that a bride would do before her marriage. I assume that most of the time that you try to look as good as you can look. Now, I've stood in front of a lot of people getting married, and I know they spend a lot of time, and all their buddies and friends have been around, and they've hair and nails and face and this and that and and all the stuff that you do, because on that day, and you girls know it's true, you're trying your best to look as good as it is possible for you to look. Aren't you? Maybe you just, when you get married, you say, oh, it's Saturday, I'm supposed to get married today. I'll go put my cutoffs on my flip-flops. I'll do my hair tomorrow, I'll put a rubber band on it. Yeah, I do, I'll tell you for my husband. Now, you would say, well, that's trash. You wouldn't do that. What if he came in in his nice tux all fixed up and sprayed and pretty and all that, and he comes in, and, and there you are. Hi, hon. <laughs> would he be embarrassed? Look at all the guests he brought to meet his lovely wife. <laughs> would a loving woman present herself to him like that? Oh, girls, no, no. The day my wife walked down the aisle, her and her solemn daddy, because I don't think he was too sure about what she was doing either about marrying me. <laughs> but I remember there in the Presbyterian church waiting on her to come, and here they came down the aisle, and I thought, man, oh, man, that is mine. <laughs> she came up there, and I thought, wow. I've looked at her many times, but... Wow, that day is a special day. Wow. Now, I've stood before a lot of you all here today. You're just pretty, that's all. Even guys look good. <laughs> Even some of them look good. And there you stand, and what you're doing when you got there, what she's done to him is to say, I, along with my court and all the people that I know and who really want this to be the best day in my life and want you to see me at my very level best and have helped me do all of this kind of work, I've done this because I want you to like what you're getting. She wants him to be impressed. Now, he loves her whether she's all decked out or not, but the point of it is, at the marriage, not Breakfast three years from now, but at <laughs> when it's all our kids. But <laughs> at the marriage, when you go forward to get married, it is important for you to look your best. It's a picture of the church. And I wonder what we together, what we would look like. Well, maybe we wouldn't have flip-flops on, but maybe we'd have cutoffs on or maybe an old saggy-looking dirty T-shirt. He's coming back royally robed. And she's got to make herself ready. And that's his work in us. Because when he comes down the aisle and here we are waiting for him, we should be a glorious church full of him, his spirit, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Isaiah 61 in verse 10. 
I'll tell you what, let's all read this together. I know you have a different translation, but read whatever you got. Let's read this together, okay? Begin when I do. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Is that you? That's just what he says. May God find us to be what he wants when Jesus comes. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word. Your word is truth. It is a truth that prevails. It is the most necessary and needed thing in our life this morning is the word. Lord, when you told Martha in the Bible that only one thing is necessary, may that be in our heart to realize our need to hear this word, to think about this word, to meditate on it, to talk about it, and to deal with it. Find us doing that, Lord, when you come. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.